This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Lynette Miller, who retired in February 2020 as head of collections after 23 years with the Washington State Historical Society. It was the diaries of a woman who had lived in Seattle, she talked about her job and how her feet hurt and, you know, just all those kind of everyday complaints. But one of the most interesting things was um, what she wrote after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. I spoke with Lynette Miller at the Historical Society's Resource Center in Tacoma in January 2020. Lynette Miller, thanks for joining us for this episode of Columbia Conversations. You have a big milestone ahead here at the Washington State Historical Society. Yes, I'm retiring in about six weeks. And when did you start? In 1997. Okay, so that's not, I mean, that doesn't seem that long ago, but I guess here that now that it's 2020, that's almost 25 years ago. Almost. Well, I suppose before we get too far into this interview, what, what do you do here at the Historical Society? What have you done here? Well, when I started here, I was um, a, a curator and basically hired to work on the Native American collections yeah. because that's been my background. Um, most of the other museums I've worked at uh, were specifically Native American collections. Okay. And that's my training. I, I received a master's degree at UW and I studied with Bill Holm, who's a very well-known oh, wow. Northwest Coast expert in this area. Yeah, yeah. So, are, are you from this area originally? No, I'm from New York State originally. Okay, so you've been in the Northwest for grad school? Or? I came to here for grad school and okay. then really liked it and stayed here. That's great. And the Native American collection here has, I mean, talk, tell me about the collection that the society has. The collection, uh, probably the strongest uh, part of the Native American collection is the basketry. And that's great for me because that's my own personal interest. Um, I worked on a type of uh, basketry bag from Eastern Washington for my um, master's thesis. Right. People know them as corn husk bags. Tell me about those. What's a corn husk bag? Um, well, originally they were, uh, like is so often the case with Native American cultures, this was a utilitarian object that later evolved into something else. But um, usually uh, it's called a corn husk bag because part of the decorative surface was made with corn husk. But it's a big, sturdy bag made of a native hemp, and uh, they were mainly used for gathering food and for storing food. Uh, dried roots and berries and things like that were really a, an important part of diet in Eastern Washington, and that's what corn husk bags for used, were used for. But they really evolved into um, kind of a lady's purse, huh. uh, smaller, more decorative, and uh, still functional, but totally different kind of function. And are there several examples in the collection here? And then yes, there are. Okay. And they uh, go back to what year? Like how, how old are some uh, of them? Probably the earliest uh, corn husk bag we have would be from the 1870s. Okay, yeah. okay. 
And then I imagine the Historical Society um, was collecting those kinds of materials like from the very earliest, like 1890s period? Yes, they were, okay. yeah. And so um, has the collection grown in the time you've been here? Yes, uh, we do, we get donations all the time and yeah. the, collection, the collection does grow by donation. Yeah. We don't have funds to purchase. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it is dependent on what people give us. And uh, so it's a bit of serendipity. You never know what's going to, to come in. And um, so I would say that people are valuing Native American things more than they used to in the past. So we probably get fewer donations of Native American things than some other kinds of things. But we do still get them. Yeah, it seems, you know, we've, we've all been watching, it seems like it's faster lately, but history and the way people talk about history and what qualifies as history has really evolved and become far more sophisticated than it was. Like when I was a kid in the 1970s, yeah. I remember going to, you know, museums, community museums, yeah, and they, sure. they'd have an old flat iron yeah. they show you, and yeah, they talk about right, yeah. the Indians yeah. this yeah. and the settlers this. It was all very, yeah. and it was, obviously it was geared toward elementary school kids, but it seemed like it was very much more... Um, I don't know, it wasn't very sophisticated. Where it that's, seems like now there's an awareness of, of the, the broader impacts of cultures. That's and definitely mixing. true. Um, it's, uh, it has evolved a great deal. And um, uh, I happened to, uh, my first museum job was in New York City. And it happened to be during the time uh, that AIM and Red Power, I mean, it's been very interesting. That's a huge evolution from then to yeah. now. And AIM was the American Indian Movement? American Indian Movement, yeah. and a very, it's been a huge evolution. One of the things that I remember in the early days, I used to work at the Museum of History and Industry. I was there from 1999 to 2006. And that was in the early years when the internet was really catching on as a place where you could look at pictures yeah. and read about yeah. stuff. And you know, I remember struggling then with this notion of, as a museum, part of our job was to you know, preserve and protect, but also share these really yes. cool three-dimensional artifacts that people can look at pictures of online and, they can, and they, can, they can sort of think about them, but there was some value in being able to let someone see, not touch usually because it's in a case, the actual three-dimensional object that has some connection to some part of our history that otherwise that, that the experience of seeing it on television or on the internet just doesn't compare to seeing it in person. That's right. Is that still the case in 2020? Oh yes, I think it definitely is. Although. People are so much more used to using the internet now yeah, yeah. that I think I think it's a little bit less, and I I actually find that sad because there's there's just nothing like seeing the real object. Um, I mean, how many times have you seen a picture of a painting, for example, and then when you see the real <laughs> painting, you're blown away. Yeah. It's bigger, it's smaller, it's brighter, you yeah. know, it's just different. It's yeah. not the same as seeing a picture of it. Yeah. So I really think it's still very important for people to be able to see the, the real thing. And, and have you noticed, I mean, this might be more of an exhibit type of question, but people's attention spans. I remember again in the old days of Mohai, which is now 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago when I started there, we could put an exhibit up and then we could leave it up for several years. You know? yeah, and yeah. now it seems like there's just this hunger for change and that's something true. new every time you come back. Yeah, that's true. And uh, so our exhibits here kind of have two different paths that kind of deal with that. We have what we think of as our more or less permanent exhibits, which are there for a long time yeah. and are about Washington history. And then we have the temporary changing exhibits that um, uh, sometimes have a wider focus. For example, right now, 
uh, the exhibit that just went up is called Men of Change. And it's a traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian about black male leaders. Well, they're not from Washington, but that's a topic that people really are interested in. Yeah. And so the temporary exhibits can deal with that more effectively. And so those come and go fairly quickly. Um, uh, usually somewhere around two to three months is the duration of those exhibits. Yeah, it's again, almost because of technological changes, museum, a history museum is now almost in the same category as a movie theater or some other sort of like amusement yeah, park. Yeah, entertainment. Just this, people yeah. have this expectation mm -hmm. to be, you know, wowed and razzle-dazzled, sure. where to me the real attraction is that is the real stuff yes. and the ability of an institution like the Washington State Historical Society to have the authority to interpret the objects in a way that isn't, you yes. know, not, not, not preachy or dictatorial, but then a way that, that sparks people to think about what this means about their own life now and moving into the future. Yes, you're always wanting people to connect with those artifacts yeah. in some way and connect with history. Yeah. That um, they, and it can be hard because things that were made 100 years ago can be very strange to people today. Yeah. You know, we've, um, we've, you've heard the examples I'm sure of kids who don't know what a dial telephone is yeah, or uh, yeah. uh, things like that. And, and uh, you really need to be able to uh, interpret that so that it's understandable and people go away knowing a little bit more about what happened in the past. Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed about getting old. I remember, again, back when I was a kid, there were things that seemed really you know, old-fashioned, like you know, horse and buggy uh -huh. kinds of things and hard to imagine. And now I was just I was talking to my daughter about the way people get entertainment now, where you can dial up whichever song or show you want to watch. And I think about in the '80s, driving around in my old Ford Pinto, you know, listening uh -huh. to the radio. What a chump! You have to wait till the next song comes on. You have to wait. You have to listen to the commercial. And you may not you like have, that next no song. Yeah. yeah, it's like what were we thinking? We we put up with such such limited choices for so many decades. It's crazy how much stuff has changed. Yeah, um, it really is yeah. astonishing. Um, and um, among the collection staff. We like to say that history doesn't stop, and so yeah. we're collecting things uh, right up to the modern uh, minute right now. Uh, in fact, someone earlier was using a, a little flip phone, and <laughs> someone else said, hey, when you get a new phone, put that old one in the collection. And we do that all the time, actually. Uh, we've put a, a copy machine that we were no longer going to use in the collection. Because what's more common than making Xerox copies? Yeah. I mean, we don't even think about that, uh, but that is something that was revolutionary, and at some point that's going to go away too. Yep. You'll see it all on your phone or your tablet yeah, or yeah. whatever. So, um, so yeah, we try to do that, and uh, our archivist is always collecting paper things from right now a poster for uh, a musical performance, for example, um, or a flyer that somebody hands out in front of the courthouse for some <laughs> cause. Um, you know, we want those and put those in the collection because honestly, those paper things can be some of the most interesting and revealing of, of what's happening, happening at any given moment. Um, we look at the old ones, um, uh, that we've collected from the past. Um, in fact, the single most used item from the paper collection is a handbill that was put up when 
people were trying to expel the Chinese from our community. Wow. And it is a poster that says, the Chinese must go. Wow. And it was calling a public meeting to, of citizens to evict the Chinese. Wow. Well, it happened here in Tacoma. There is no other known copy of that poster. Wow. But somebody collected it, and it is an amazing example of that bad situation. Um, but uh, it's been used in all kinds of books. Mm. People are constantly asking to use that poster. Wow. So it can be very revealing information uh, about a, a time period and an event. Yeah, and the difference between a picture of that poster and the actual poster, it's like night and day. And the that's fact right. That this, this sort of, there this it piece is. Of paper it's got the staple holes in it. It bore witness to this yeah, thing. That's, yeah. that's the stuff that I hope, I hope we never lose sight of, regardless of how we're talking to people on the phone or how we're listening to music or watching TV shows. I hope that, that, I know. that understanding of the power of those objects that were actually there, I hope we never lose that. I don't think we will. I don't think so. Well, there's certainly a a cadre of people who are trying to keep it going, so. Yeah, yeah. Now, was there ever any particular object that you collected where you, you collected it from the person who had used it or it had some like, is there a deeply meaningful artifact that really stands out in your mind that you collected while you were here? Well, something that just came in the last month or so, um, a woman gave us a teddy bear that mm -hmm. had been her teddy bear as a child she was Japanese-American and she was interned. Wow. And she had that teddy bear. And that's an incredibly meaningful, just incredibly meaningful object. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the thing I think has changed for the, not, not completely, but changed for the positive in that we never turn away from the dark, troubling stories. In fact, right. we, we embrace those more because there's more to learn from those. I mean, I like a, a sentimental show where you see things that people are nostalgic about. Yeah. And there, I think there's always a place for that. But these more troubling things, like this, the Chinese exclusion right. poster or this teddy bear from yes, Japanese internment. Yes, those are internment. two uh, yeah. amazing examples. Um, I also, um, well, one of the things uh, we were just discussing this this morning um, uh, happened a few years ago. Uh, a woman who was um, an antique dealer had um, found uh, this set of things in a trunk. And there was enough information to know the story. And they were all child's clothing and a couple of toys, but they were very simple and they were very worn. They were definitely not high end. They were clearly not a wealthy family. But uh, these were the things that belonged to a little girl who died of diphtheria. Yeah. Wow. And her mother was so affected that she just put these things in a trunk and never looked at them again. And they happened to turn up in this woman's um, you know, business. And it was so powerful to her that she didn't want to just break it up and sell them. Yeah. And she gave it to us intact. And it's just an amazing little story of um, um, how the situation with health and disease was so different. I mean, we're dealing with this now in the recurrence of measles, but I think people now forget how devastating these diseases were in the past. Yeah, yeah. And so 
it tells that that little group of things tells a lot of stories. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. That's I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear we agree about artifacts. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm not surprised. Um, so what's, oh well, yeah, that's I mean that's what I've done my whole career is artifacts. So. Um, and then in terms of the collection, I mean I think like most museums, it's only a tiny percentage is ever on display. That's right. right. Yeah. That's why we're trying to get um, as much as we can online, so that um, people have at least that access to it. And then they know what we have, and they can come here and look at it if they need to, if they're researching, or it's available to go on exhibit. Um, uh, we, we put things, uh, especially the paper uh, manuscript collections, those are, um, those are available worldwide. Um, nice. At this point, we're still working on getting a lot of the physical 3D things online, mm -hmm. but we've literally had research requests from all over the world um, because of some topic that was in a manuscript collection that someone was interested in. Mm. Um, and some of these turn up in just strange ways. Um, there was one that... Um, Ed, our, our archivist, uh, was contacted by Salvation Army, and there were a group of diaries oh, wow. um, that turned up, and um, I don't recall he bought them or they gave them whatever. They probably mm -hmm. paid a little bit of money for them. Mm -hmm. But it was the diaries of a woman who had lived in Seattle, and she was um, working class. She worked retail. Uh, Rhodes Department Store, oh, which yeah. was the big right, road, right big department store right then. Yeah. She was a clerk at Rhodes Department wow. Store, and and she had a sort of shiftless husband, who wow. didn't think he had to work very much, and she had an aging mother who lived with them, wow. and so that has been used in so many different ways. Um, people who are studying um, uh, health and uh, home care, S someone um, looked at them because this woman was dealing with an aging mother. There mm. weren't any help agencies then yeah, to, yeah. to deal with that. Wow. You just were on your own. And her husband developed dementia. Wow. And so there was a whole section about her dealing with, again, without any help, this husband who had dementia. Um, she talked about her job and how her feet hurt and you know, just all those kind of everyday complaints. Wow. But one of the most interesting things was um, what she wrote after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Um, she wrote in her diary about that and then she, uh, the next day, wrote that um, Congress had declared war on Japan and uh, her comment was, only one woman voted against it. God bless her. Wow. That's not our view of World War II. Yeah, that's Jeanette Rankin from uh, Montana, exactly. if I correctly. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. But this working class woman in Seattle wow. was anti-war. Wow. And so this is just complete serendipity. Yeah. A batch of diaries, nobody well known. <laughs> We so often people have people who say, oh, you want diaries? Well, they weren't important. It's like, but there can be fabulous important information yeah. in them. Yeah, oh, that's a great story. Wow, that's cool. So in terms of um, 
for the collection moving forward, where are the areas where the Historical Society wants to collect more things from? Oh, yeah. Well, right now, um, we, we feel that we don't have enough on agriculture. We have some things, mm -hmm. but we, we could definitely use more that relates to agriculture in all of its aspects, whether it's um, um, you know, ranching in eastern Washington or uh, growing hops in the Puyallup Valley or you know, any of those kinds of okay. things. Um, we're really interested right now in a more recent period, um, the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam War, the anti-war movement, hippies, you know, mm -hmm. counterculture, all of that, because this is the point at which people are kind of thinking, oh, I don't want to save that old stuff, yeah. and they're getting rid of it, and so we want them to come to us. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, so those are kind of two areas that, and of course, anything relating to uh, ethnic groups in our area. Um, it can be a little harder to get that kind of material because a lot of people want to start a dedicated museum for their subject area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so those things don't come to us as readily. So we'd really like to have some of that material too. Okay. And for you personally, what's, what are you going to be doing? What's the future hold for you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading books and working <laughs> in my garden. And, uh, but uh, there are certainly uh, topics of research in Native American basketry that I would really like to pursue. So, How would you feel about writing an article for Columbia sometime? I could certainly <laughs> do that. <laughs> All right. Well, Lynette Miller, thank you for joining us on Columbia Conversations. Congratulations on a fabulous career. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you to Lynette Miller for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Miller retired from the Historical Society in 2020 after a 23-year career there. If you have items you'd like to donate to the Washington State Historical Society's collections, or if you'd like to make a gift to care for the collections, please contact the Society at 253-272-3500. That's 253-272-3500. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.